welcome to On the Wet Coast, a podcast about sexuality and ethical non-monogamy of every variety. We talk polyamory and swinging, monogamish and open relationships, from dirty, dirty sex to heartbreak. We share our personal experiences and philosophy, observations and theories, what works for us, and where we fucked it right up. Join us on the Wet Coast. Accountability and consent can feel like the least fun topics to discuss when it comes to sexy lifestyles, but when we really focus on building these factors in a way that lets go of the definitions used by the justice system and focuses on the subjective experiences of the parties, our kink and sexy times can be much more fun. In an era of social media callouts, it might feel risky to take part in activities where consent factors strongly, which means quality negotiations and being accountable to the consent rules of others, as well as our own, are more important than ever. Today, we talk to Victor Salmon, an educator who has created the Voices Framework for Best Practices of Consent. Victor will help guide us through some of the ways we can make our consent negotiations lead to high-quality consent, so our playtimes can be great for everyone involved. Welcome, Victor. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. All right, so I'll just read out Victor's bio from their website. Intersectional mixed-race feminist, queer relationship anarchist, educator and public speaker, MVK, that's Metro Vancouver Kink, director at large and accountability subcommittee member, accountability coach, Vancouver consent crew facilitator, and host of the Intimate Interactions podcast. Yay. <laughs> so how did you get involved in, um, in being a consent educator? I guess the very first time I thought about doing consent education, I was working with the Vancouver Consent Crew. They just needed an extra hand, and the Vancouver Consent Crew thought it would be really good for that job. So they had me volunteer with them, and I took their consent workshop and then got involved helping co-facilitate it. And later on, when I was doing work with MBK, they needed someone to do the same sort of work, and I had experience, so I started teaching consent with MBK. Great. Awesome. So let's do a quick breakdown of what the VOICES acronym means before we dig in deeper. Sure. Uh, So we've got V for verified, O for ongoing, I for informed, C for in context, E for emotional, and S for sound. Mm Mm-hmm. So why don't you tell me a bit more about these various letters and really what they mean? And maybe, we, and maybe we could cover all the letters. So maybe we could start start with J once we're done voices. <laughs> so there are there are four key shifts I think that are important to talk about before we get into letters. Is it okay if I go into those? Absolutely. Sure. So the premise of the voices framework is to talk more about consent, not from an I got consent or I didn't get consent binary, but I think I'm even getting ahead of myself there. We should talk about a definition of consent first. Sure. Let's even talk about what we're talking about. Um, When when we talk about consent, like, what's the first thing that either of you would think about? Feel free to, you know, yell it out. (laughs) (laughs) Why are we being interviewed? This is our podcast. (laughs) Um, I just, you know, two or more people agreeing to do something together is kind of what I think of. Yeah. That's great. Um, a lot of people will say things like permission mm. rather than agreement. Mm. Right. And there's like a really serious implication there. Yeah, there's, of, there's a big flaw in that. Yeah, of one person pursuing a thing and the other person permitting it to happen. Yeah, yeah. it's it's a, it's a gatekeeping thing. And, mm. it, and it, you know, we could probably spend a whole podcast talking about how that falls into traditional gender roles. And, yeah, and rape culture too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
which is important to voice and name in this conversation. Erm. So if we're <laughs> if we're talking about um, that binary of I got consent or I didn't get consent in the context of like, okay, we want to talk about this agreement. We're assuming that there is a way to know 100% for sure that there is agreement happening. Yeah. So I think it's important to hold space a little bit for nuance and just let people be the masters of their own experience mm-hmm. and sort of just give them that that ability to say, um, yeah, I really wasn't wasn't feeling super in agreement while that thing was happening. And this isn't about regret, right? I'm not saying that regret is non-consent. There are people that will make that claim. I'm not one of those people. Um, For me, when I think about this idea of consent as agreement, I think of it as an internal experience of agreement during an activity. And the reason I go to that as a definition, this idea of it being a subjective or an internal experience, um, is primarily because it supports better consent and it doesn't come at a cost because no legal framework will ever adopt that definition. Right. What I'm talking about is way past any idea of a legal framework of, of fighting with people in courts or, or being culpable and having to go to jail. What I'm talking about is interpersonal consent. I'm talking about having higher quality of consent. I'm talking about discussing your risk profile for non-consent happening. Um, but... I'm a lot more coherent when I'm in a workshop. <laughs> so the first, the first of the four shifts that I sort of wanted to sort of mention is this, is this idea of, of leaving behind this binary of I got consent or I didn't get consent, sort of moving from a rules of you have to do these things yeah. to a principle-focused framework. And that's what the Voices Consent Framework is. It's focused on these principles of consent. So all of the letters that got read out are fundamentally principles, not rules. If someone doesn't do one of them, it doesn't necessarily mean consent's not happening. It just means there's a higher likelihood that one of the parties is not having that subjective experience of agreement. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of reasons why people might choose to say yes instead of no when they're really a no to something. And it's really hard to say, oh, that's exclusively this one person's responsibility or it's exclusively this other person's responsibility. It's much easier to simply ask, like, what are your goals? Like, yes. are you trying to just avoid being accused of non-consent? Yes. Because that's a legitimate goal, too. And so long as you pursue that goal ethically, <laughs> yeah. um, then there's nothing wrong with that being your goal. Or, or maybe your goal is just to have better, higher quality, sexier, more fun interactions with people. Or maybe it's not even about sexiness. Maybe we're just talking about, you know, getting through the day and, like... I, I think that's a that's a really fantastic way to approach it because the um, you know the permission based model it's I think that it comes from the objective of uh, this is this is what I want you know you're you're mm. looking you're looking for that specific out, specific outcome mm-hmm. and so they're really you're not interested in nuance when mm-hmm. that is your approach because you're really just looking for a, a go, no go. Right. Yeah. It very much is a question of, have I checked this box? Um, and that's actually one of the other shifts to make is this <laughs> idea um, from consent as contract to that internal experience of agreement. Mm-hmm. Because we tend to think of consent a lot from not just the word agreement, but that word agreement implies the word contract. It's yes. about this social contract, if nothing else. And the problem with contracts is they're known for coercion and fine print, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is not acceptable in this case. No, that, that a contract is a way to um, to leverage mm. the original agreement mm. against future disagreement. Right. 
which when you think about it in the context of ongoing consent and sex is like the very opposite of what you want. Yes. To do. Yeah. But yet it's, it's implied in the meaning of the words we're using when we talk about it in our very definition. There, th- and even well-meaning uh, consent educators can model, mm. uh, you know, really uh, practices that are that are sometimes off-putting and also reinforce the the permission model. Like, mm. you know, uh, I've I've seen videos put out as sort of guidelines for college students of the "Is this okay?" Right. You know, the "Is this okay?" model, where right. you know, at at sort of every step, "Is this okay?" rather than talking about what do we want you right. know what is you know um are you enjoying this do you want something different you know sort of ways to approach mm. um uh actually finding what we like rather than you know uh, a a a series a series of check boxes mm. i had an experience recently um teaching a workshop that sort of resonates a lot with what you're saying which is this idea that sometimes you're just trying to teach a 101 and yeah. get people to like recognize like the gross violence and harm that they could be having in the world and yep. the nuances get lost cuz you're just trying to go for like the 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 20th percentile yes <laughs> when like everyone above that would be much better served perhaps by a more nuanced perspective so i totally respect where you're coming from and i also like in the context of like the way that we treat you know, dating in college and the way that society conceives of getting super, super drunk and, and approaching all this shame. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just there's so much to talk about there, which <laughs> we'll probably just put to the side. Yes. You know? But yeah. 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 And I think we are, we're sort of aiming to have the the more nuanced discussion here because mm-hmm. sort of our assumption that a, a, a lot of our listeners are kind of in this, you know, informed space that they're really consciously sort of, you know, above that college student level of, of understanding. Um, so, or, or, you know, even, even if they, you know, haven't sort of, uh, experienced a lot of, you know, uh, mm-hmm. education around consent have at least, you know, attended events or gone yeah. to parties where this has been brought up and, mm. you know, and that can be, that can be a big eye-opening experience for people that are, you know, mm. just exploring non-monogamy and open mm. sexuality to be like, Oh, it, they, we don't just go with the flow. It's not just, you know, us, you know, um, you know, uh, wandering into a room and touching strangers. <laughs> uh, there's, and, and no shade to swingers. There's a reason I'm not a swinger. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. So we talked about, um, rules to principles was the first shift. Um, the second was consent is contract to experience of agreement. Um, and there's, there's a consequence there that's really, really fun. And that's the third one, which is we get to shift from having shame around being one of those people that can't even work out getting consent to this idea of risk profiles and quality of consent. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because once we acknowledge that we're working with imperfect information, like there's no way for me to know 100% the person I'm interacting with is a yes. For all I know, that's being totally screwed up by power dynamics. Maybe they heard this podcast and sought me out and they see me as this person that I definitely don't see myself as. Yeah. Um, or as this person they admire, or this person that, you know, and I'm not saying this to be like self-aggrandizing. I just mean like anytime you're holding a microphone, there is this microphone effect that people may see you mm-hmm. um, not as the person that volunteers a metric shit ton and maybe feels incredibly undervalued for the time and work you put in, you know, to some something you're passionate about and love, but they see was, wow, this person's at the front of the room and they're saying all these things and they're so cool and this is all new and I'm so excited. 
that can be highly, not necessarily coercive exactly, but it can certainly be skewing of a person's judgment. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, it's, it's almost a form of NRE, that, mm. that feeling of, you know, really sort of admiring somebody in that environment. Sure. And I'm not trying to say that lust is coercion. I'm not trying to make this point that, like, a person can be coerced by excitement, right? Yep. I'm instead trying to say that that excitement that may lead them to be a yes to the experience right now and perhaps regret it later, which, again, I'm not saying is not consent, but that excitement can lead to situations where they want to say no in the moment but they feel trapped socially by status. Yes. So I was more trying to make the point, excuse me for being sick and sniffly. (laughs) I was more trying to make the point that people can be um, almost in this gray area where they're a no to a thing and they talk themselves out of voicing that no, or they talk themselves into, well, this won't be so bad. Or they get into a space, you know, that's a combination of the two where they think, you know, I really want to say no, but this person's so important in the community. And like, what's going to happen if I say no? I'll just say yes, it's just this one time, it's not the end of the world. And then they find afterwards they just feel awful about the whole thing, or, you know, what started out as more manual sex or oral sex turned into something bigger, and they they still didn't feel like they had access to their no. There there are just so many situations where one person might think, well, I got it, yes, I got consent, this should be fine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if the person couldn't voice their no, that's their own fault. Like, they take this highly personally accountable... Yeah. Um, approach to consent that is very contractually based yes. and it can have very harmful effects in the world. Yeah. And it can be one of the big drawbacks of sort of the sex positive positivity movement and the accountability movement and stuff that, that there is that, you know, sort of overemphasis on, on that, like, you know, that was your responsibility to right. say this and, and, or, you know, thinking I'm just good giving in game right now. Yeah. Good giving game. Um, and the, I think that the, um, the, emph- the emphasis on, on, you know, entirely personal responsibility, uh, can be used to, to, to make me completely negate, mm. uh, any responsibility for, uh, you know, for just observing, right? Just um, to uh, to kind of you know um, realizing uh, what my intuition might tell me about what's what's really going on here. Yeah, mm. yeah, that whole sense of not trusting oneself and needing a reason. Yes, it's like you don't need a reason to say no. Yeah, it's okay if you're just not feeling it, and you just need like five minutes to reset or like figure out what's not quite landing. Yeah, like, but that all comes back to like the way we're conditioned to not give ourselves permission to say no, which yeah. is so much more of a gendered thing than we have time to get into, but also is just bullshit regardless of who's experiencing it. Well, and, and, um, you know, this, maybe this is, uh, you know, a little out of order, but the, uh, mm. um, the, um, often I think people have an aversion to saying no because of how it can cr- uh, create a feeling of a setback. And so saying no to this one thing mm. can feel like I'm saying no to a lot of possibilities. Right. And, uh, and so it's like, okay, uh, I'll, I'll just, I'll just smother that no for now. Right. Um, rather when, if, if we have a more fluid approach to consent and it's like, oh, maybe I just don't want this, but, and, but maybe we can look at everything that I do want. Yeah. My favorite thing to tell clients when I'm coaching them about that is I'm an, I'm a no to that, but I'm a yes to you. Yeah. Which I stole from Marsha, um, um, Baczynski. Baczynski. Thank you. 
my role in this podcast is saying Marsha's name correctly. So Wachinski. It, it's hilarious because I can spell it, and when I Google it, I spell it correctly. But then occasionally I'm like, wait, wait, what was her name again? But yes. Um, yeah, she has a really fantastic, I'm sure you've already talked about it on your show, um, um, Ways of Hearing You Know. Mm-hmm. Um, being able to, to sort of have that acceptance and then and validate the other person, even if it's just as simple as, that's great. <laughs> the only thing I have had brought up, actually, when I've been talking about Marsha's frameworks, is there is um, there's a question that is like, um, that's awesome, can I ask you again later, that is on one of her um, ways of hearing and know graphics. Mm. And I have been called in hard over that one. Um, Interesting. And called out gently over that one. Um, which is to say it's not exactly trauma-informed, or that has been the criticism I've been given. So if someone is recovering from trauma, and they have gone to all this effort to give you one no, and it has been exhausting for them, to ask them again with a deferred consequence mm-hmm. is so hard for them to give you a second no. Whereas, you can always flip the question and just say, like, cool, like, thank you for taking care of yourself, in a very Reed Mahalko-esque slash yeah, yeah, Marcia yeah. esque fashion. Yeah. Um, you know, thank you for taking care of yourself. And if you ever want to bring this up with me in the future, I'm super open to talk about it again, just so you know there's, like, no, you know... But I won't you see that's that's really great because yeah. it does you know it, it does mean that saying no doesn't close a door forever and ever right but like you said um, there's kind of this historical persistence model to mm. consent that it, that is intensely problematic yes. and you know can I ask you again later right it definitely rubs up against mm. against that that problematic model a little bit. Yeah, it's that whole, um, you have to close so many times before you get the yes nonsense. Yeah, oh wow. Which doesn't apply to sales very well, let alone to to sex. All right, so let's get back on that. (laughs) Thank you for the steering. We're a third of the way through and have actually not really started our show notes. Right, but you know, (laughs) so the interesting thing about the framework is so much of it is conceptual and about reframing, and the principles will just fall into place once we have sort of the (laughs) the four shifts. So we talk about the fundamentals. Yes. So the idea is typically we think about consent as this easy thing to get. You check this box, you get consent. You just had to ask. But, you know, people who have, say, violated someone's consent or, or even just, like, pushed into that boundary at all and gotten into a dubious consent situation where they're like, oh, my God, I'm a terrible person. I have fucked this up so hard, and all I had to do was ask, and I didn't do that well. Or I'm so angry at this person for accusing me of this thing because I did ask and I did check the box. Therefore, it's all their fault. Mm-hmm. Um, we get into this, again, this really unhelpful binary. So one of the nice things about talking about this as an internal experience is we don't have a way of knowing 100% everyone else is having that experience. Yes. Therefore, we know there is less, there is greater than a 0% chance someone is having a non-consensual experience of an interaction with us, which means it is a thing that happens to a lot of people. It is really just a question of one, how egregious is it? Mm -hmm. And two, what is our likelihood of that happening? And that gives us so much freedom to play because now we can reduce... We can talk about our risk of giving someone a non-consensual experience. And we can talk about best practices to reduce that risk. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other conversation from telling a college student what they can and can't do. Yes. Right? This is this is so kink-friendly because now all of a sudden when someone says, yeah, I really like to engage in consensual non-consent, um, you have a framework, right? Someone can have an experience that is not non-consensual even though everything about that experience to an outside observer might look yes. non-consensual. Yeah. 
So it gives you this, this kink-friendly framework that all of a sudden you can start applying to these really intense edge play situations where, you know, your risk of non-consent might be very high, but it could be half of what it is right now. Yes. So we can start talking about quality of consent. We can start talking about these best practices. So that's the third one. And then the fourth one that I'm going to throw out there is a carceral to transformative shift. We have this idea, especially in very liberal or in alternative sex communities, that, you know, yes, yes, jail bad. Um, yes, yes, court system disproportionately affects POCs. Um, like, you can, you can, there's so much I could say about how our legal system is set up as a form of institutionalized violence to racialize people. Yeah. Um, when Even when you look at conviction rates for things like rape and sexual assault, like I dare you to look at racial demographics on that oh, one. It's, it's it, ugly. I, I, th- I think it's it's far worse than even uh, drug crimes. It's, it, it's bad. Yeah. Um, and, and I think racism in, in Canadian institutions, just as an aside, you will see best by looking at youth institutionalization rates. How often are youths imprisoned? And if you look at the statistics for imprisoned girls especially it's like you go through all of the forms of of and i I hesitate to say privilege because like obviously there's so much discrimination that happens against femme presenting people but ironically the same discrimination that keeps femmes out of boardrooms keeps them out of jail a lot of the time because there's this totally sexist misogynistic bullshit about femmes not being capable yeah and that also applies to them not being capable of harm like in the sense that like oh you know this she couldn't possibly be dangerous so it tends to it tends to keep them out of convictions as well. So if you look at femme children, what is the rate of incarceration? Because there is some femme kid somewhere that has done something bad enough or is perceived as being dangerous enough they're going to go to jail. And like the rates on the prairies are ridiculous. Like mm. we're talking in in the high 80s to 90% indigenous for yeah. incarceration yeah. in population bases that are 14 to 15% indigenous overall, yeah. which is pretty absurd. And when you get as far as, I believe it's Manitoba, the rate of incarcerating um, boys that are indigenous is around 92%, I believe, yeah. and girls is 98%. So, like, you look at a 98% number in a population base that's 15% indigenous, and, like, you don't there's, need to do a there's something going on, test. Yeah. You, you know that there's... Yeah. So, anyways, that's an aside, um, but it seems important to mention when we're talking about racism. So, talking about this idea of carceral, we tend to think about detention in institutions, but in alternative sex communities, we don't do that because we don't have the authority. Instead, we'll say this person's no longer allowed in our communities. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like this, this inverted incarceration. We're saying like, dishonor on you, dishonor on your cow, yep. right? Like you're yep. exiled from this community. So what ends up happening, I think, is we very much just share the most problematic people between communities. Yes. The swingers that get passed. Yes. The swingers that don't play with swingers anymore go and hang out with the polyamorous folks and vice versa. You know, like the the people that don't play with polyamorous and swinger folks, you know, maybe they go and they join the kink community or they go and just find any other alternative sex community. Yeah, or they, they travel two towns over or yeah. they, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So taking a look at going from carceral to transformative helps us, I think, deal with more of that baggage. And even if people are still problematic, even if they're still dangerous, even if we still have to hold space for survivors... And, and we do. We do absolutely have to do that. <laughs> I'm not saying we shouldn't center survivors. I'm just saying we should center survivors with survivors. We should center survivors with communities. And to some extent, we should consider what it might look like centering perpetrators with perpetrators. When we're having a conversation with them, it is important to center survivors, sure. 
And if we don't hold space for their humanity from a non-binary, non-shame-based model, it's going to be very hard to do any kind of rehabilitation work or like help them understand what a framework for healthy negotiation could look like because Mm -hmm. we're so focused on like, you're such a disgusting human. Why am I even working with you? I'm putting in all this volunteer time. You don't even appreciate it. Like Mm -hmm. if you come at it from that place, you're going to get burnt out really quick and you're not going to do very much to change that person's mind. So Mm -hmm. those are the four shifts. And that's, that, that's it. That's, that's the preamble of 25 minutes. Um, rules to principles, um, experience, I'm sorry, from uh, consent is contract to experience of agreement, shifting shame to risk profiles and quality of consent, and shifting from a carceral model to a transformative. Those are the four shifts. And if you can, you can wrap your head around the idea of consent as an internal experience of agreement and around those four shifts, the rest of this will be extremely intuitive and will just sort of follow from those principles naturally. I, and I just want to make, make sure I understand in, um, in the context of our communities mm-hmm. that the, the, uh, the last principle, when we talk about carcerative, the, the, the exile model is really a proxy for the carcerative model. Yes, that's this. exactly it. Yes. Yeah. That is exactly what I was saying. Okay. It's sort of an analog that we use because we lack because the Because we can't lock people up, so we, we banish them. Yeah. Or, or punish them in some other way. Because yes. there is definitely community outrage, and rightly so. Mm-hmm. Like, it's reasonable outrage. And, you know, we don't have um, the death penalty anymore for a reason, despite the fact that in, in, in the midst of some of this outrage, sometimes you'll get people saying stuff like that, and it's it can be pretty scary. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and, and there's... Uh, there's a there's an element of like um, almost virtually putting people in stocks through you know through uh, social media um, mm-hmm. you know haranguing and stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there there are a lot of punitive analogs that that take place when we don't actually have a, a system of of law to mm-hmm. uh, to enforce the the community outrage. And when we have a system of law that's fundamentally failed to address this type of harm. Okay. At first, an open marriage seems like the greatest thing in the world to Natalie and Sean. Adding a bunch of new, hot people to their already excellent sex life? What could be better? Then they meet Beth, a queer single mom with a lesbian partner, and things become complicated. After some fun dating as a threesome, Beth and Sean fall in love, and Natalie feels pushed to the side by both her former lover and her husband. As Sean and Beth begin celebrating new milestones and plan their first trip together as a couple, Natalie is thrown for a loop and longs for a time that being open felt sexy and fun. Natalie starts seeking that fun for herself and, after many naughty adventures and a few false starts, finds her own unexpected love. Join Natalie, Sean, and Beth in a funny, sexy, surprising story as they navigate the challenges of deciding that when it comes to the amount of love in their lives, they choose more. Get Cat Stark's new novel, Waking Up Polyamorous, in ebook or paperback at your favorite online retailer. Hey, lovies, this is Dirty Lola, host and creator of the Sex at a Go Go podcast. Sex at a Go Go is a live comedy show, sex ed QA, and go go review that takes place once a month in New York in the back room of a tiki bar. But what happens if you can't make it to New York in the back room of a tiki bar? That's why you listen to the podcast. That's right. It's a live show. I'm being funny. I'm going to teach you some things. You're not even going to know you're learning. 
So join me here on Swingset.fm or the Swingset app for Android or on sexatagogo.com and check us out. You won't regret it. All right, so what's next now that, <laughs> now that we have the fundamentals? All right, we were talking about voices, I believe, half an hour ago. Yes. Um, yeah, so you, your original question was for me to tell you more about the letters mm-hmm. in the voices framework, yes? Yep. Okay, so the idea behind the verified principle, because there are six principles, um, the idea behind the verified principle is that it be a clear, confident, explicit, affirmative communication. So if you're getting, um, that may be verbal. It may be nonverbal. It's a very... Um, agnostic framework when it comes to a person's implementation or execution. Some people will say it has to be an affirmative verbal yes. I mean, in a consensual non-consent scene, that just doesn't apply. Mm-hmm. So trying to come up with more of a universal framework means trying to be a little more flexible. So the verified um, part of voices is very much that it needs to be confident, clear, or explicit. Because enthusiasm looks different in BDSM than it does in casual monogamous dating Mm -hmm. or any other kind of dating for that matter. That's not kinky. Yeah. And even with like long-term partners versus with newer Mm -hmm. partnerships Mm -hmm. and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, there's going to be, you know, there with long-term partners, there often becomes some sort of, you know, non-verbalized consent stuff that's just because, you know, over time you've, you've figured out that these are just things that you do together. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't mean that that's, you know, you, you can't withdraw that or you're always going to be like, well, we always do that. It's fine. Um, but you right. get sort of some shorthand for that stuff. Yeah. yeah. And with people's body language, because yeah. you've known them for so long and you can read it so well. Yeah. Whereas maybe that's not a best practice with someone you just met five minutes ago. Yes. Trying to read body language and use that as a substitute for a verbal yes. So what it comes back to is it's everyone's responsibility to sort of give and get consent very clearly. Right. And that's the V-pillar. Um, did, did you have any questions about like that as a principle or does that seem pretty No, nope, it seems pretty clear. I mean, and, and yeah, I think all these will be. I mean, the O stands for ongoing. So again, pretty, pretty straightforward. Reversible, withdrawable at any time. Um, the, biggest, the biggest caveat with ongoing that I think a lot of folks miss is it requires trust or confidence that a no will be respected if a no is given. So if you are doing something with someone in a position of authority or doing something with someone who occupies a more dominant social position or dominant demographic, whether that's race, whether that's gender. So if you've got, you know, like a trans person of color playing with someone who's, um, you know, a white person that that's, who's not, who's a cisgendered person, like those those avenues of power are going to affect, you know, what would it look like if I said a no and this person didn't respect my no? Who's going to be believed in the community? Who's mm. going to get run out of town? Who's going to be the troublemaker in this narrative? It's probably not going to be the white cis person. It might be, but probably not. And I think in the mind of a person saying no, and I obviously can't speak for trans folks, even though I occupy a non-binary space, um, I... Yeah, I, I I think as a person of color, like there are definitely times where if I'm playing with a, a white cisgendered woman where I'm like, yeah, like I have very limited options in this if any of us goes sideways, which yeah. might ex- which might explain the context of why I'm anxious about things like consent <laughs> <laughs> and why I build these like what I consider to be a very robust and flexible framework. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I really like the, the have an exit strategy mm-hmm. piece mm-hmm. of of the ongoing because that's I think something that we we forget to talk about sometimes and I think 
having more upfront conversations about like, hey, like, we'd like to have this negotiation. You know, what should we do if this doesn't work? Um, And we never want to actually look at those pieces of it. And I think that that can be a really valuable thing to have, like, sort of agreements about how you might disagree before you even start talking about the agreements. Right. Um, Right. What does a no look like in your body? Yeah. How will I know you're you're giving me a no? Yeah. Mm, yeah. Those sorts of questions before you even get down to... See, that's really interesting because uh, I I do sometimes have have trouble saying no, right? Like of, of the, you know, of actually starting to talk in, in mm. the heat of the moment. And so, um, actually, uh, articulating that to somebody beforehand, you know, and saying, you know, Hey, if I'm like this, it might mean this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like if you see this body language in me, it might be a good time to check in because I yeah, kind of struggle yeah, yeah. with this. Yeah. And that's as much for them as a hazard for them psychologically as for me, because I also struggle saying no sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, It really depends on, like, the power position I'm occupying. Um, But, uh, like, that's a a hazard for me, but, like, it's a hazard I live with, but it's not necessarily a hazard the other person lives with. So being able to tell the partner I'm playing with, like, yeah, like, if you're negotiating with me in scene, I'm just going to become one big yes, and my yeses aren't meaningful in scene. But if you ask me in advance, even if it's, like, right before the scene, I'm a pretty good judge of what I want. It's only once the scene has started that I really can't yeah. negotiate well. I'm just going to want to submit to whatever you want in that moment. And that's not a very good indicator of whether I necessarily really want to be doing the thing. It's more that I don't feel like I have access to my no in a really endorphin high space. What, yeah, and what a fantastic um, sort of uh, explanation for the value of detailed pre-negotiation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not just in kink scenes. I yeah. think a lot of the time, you know, people, especially in in non-monogamous and swinger spaces in these more casual sex scene situations, feel like, you know, oh, that's a bummer. Like, let's not let's not spend all this time <laughs> talking because, you know, that's gonna that's gonna kill the mood. It's gonna, you know, kill the vibe and stuff. But, you know, I'm I'm totally a sex nerd, so I just like I want to have all the discussions and it I want to learn all the things. So hot. Um because you're literally talking your way through fantasies. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yep. And even just like I I want this to be the best experience for everyone. So the more knowledge I can have you know, beforehand and, and even sort of as we go and someone's like, oh, and there's also this thing. I'm like, yes, you know, like I get really excited about that, but there is this cultural idea that you know, like, it's just all supposed to flow. And, and I think really focusing on, on having these, like more of these really detailed discussions in, in casual sex kind of situations, as well as, you know, we can learn so much from the kinksters as it's far like, as this goes. I couldn't agree more. What I found most interesting about listening to you just mentioned that piece was how it almost feels borderline misogynistic that the culture set up to quote unquote go with the flow because Mm -hmm. it's it's setting men up to be much more capable to ask for what they want Mm -hmm. it's setting men up it's, it's setting women up to have a much harder time saying no to things and in the traditional narrative of you know men as the pursuer of sex women as the gatekeeper of sex that whole rape culture piece we were talking about um like it, it really is part of that hegemonic gender, like the idea that we're just going to assign all these beneficial traits that people are, you know, that will make them successful in these spaces to men yeah. and then tell non-men that they are not allowed to do these things because it is, you know, unwomanly or it is not fe- effeminate or it is unattractive or it is, you know, ruining the space for everyone else. Yes. You know, heaven, heaven, why do I keep using that expression? <laughs> uh, but <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like this, this whole mm. notion that we're, that, that, that women are socialized very intensely to take care 
yes. not just of other, not just of their partner, but of spaces, of communities. Yep. And all that conditioning to do this emotional labor comes sometimes at their own expense. And it's like, there is a huge misogyny piece and like hegemonic gender piece that I just felt like, wow, it's really kind of like landing. And like, I really gravitate away from that type of culture in those types of spaces. And I've always felt very uncomfortable in them. And it's just all kind of clicking for me. So thank you for that. <laughs> uh, so I stands for informed. Yes. Yes. So we were talking about ongoing trust that people would say, no, I stands for informed. So Oh yeah, game theory tells us that we're always working with incomplete information, so there's a question of like how informed is informed enough? And when we're talking about these interactions, which interactions need to be how informed? You know, if I'm going to pick up a sandwich at Subway, it doesn't need to be as informed an interaction as uh, you know, if I'm going to have sex with the person who works at Subway. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're two very different conversations with different levels of intimacy and different levels of consent and in, informed standards, so you know, if this human is just making me a sandwich, it's it's more okay if it follows scripts in society and there's sort of there's yes. sort of more of a well-defined script in place and everyone's pretty comfortable with that, requiring really small amounts of emotional labor to renegotiate that agreement because the agreement is I polite you at politely, hopefully, ask you for what I want on my sandwich, you make the sandwich, I pay your business the appropriate amount, and they eventually pay you something which hopefully is not egregiously underpaid. <laughs> And then I go away and eat my sandwich and everyone's happy with that interaction. Hopefully. No, it's a script that works fairly well. Yeah. Once once it's once we're sort of getting into this realm of, cool, now I'm having sex with a human behind the counter at Subway. <laughs> Maybe not directly behind the counter at Subway, but a human who sometimes stands behind the counter at Subway. Um, then then everything changes because what do I even mean by sex? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's this whole notion of like you know, maybe talking about stuff in advance is this really sexy, fan, you know, fantasy-based form of foreplay that's very linguistic and, and really fun for us. Or maybe the person really doesn't like words and they really don't like pre-negotiation and they're uncomfortable in that space. And maybe I'm not interested in an interaction that doesn't involve pre-negotiation, mm-hmm. which, right. is, which yeah. is okay. Which is okay, yeah. Um, as an initiator, I can still say no if I, you know, feel like halfway through, like, cool, this is not landing for me the way that I thought it was going to land for me. Yeah. I don't feel like I have the safety that I need to continue as an initiator. Um, so if this person doesn't want to talk about it, that's great. And we're probably just better for different people yeah. and wish them all the best and be like, let's go back to the sandwich script. <laughs> that worked better. <laughs> Sex with someone else, maybe for both of us. Yeah. Cool. So in terms of informed, there's sort of a reasonable amount of informed. So I'm not saying everything needs to be absolutely perfect, you know, on your first swing, but there are some best practices, like having negotiations be inclusive instead of saying, oh, I'm good for anything except for blah. Yeah. Being able to say what I would really like is A, B, and C. I'm amenable to D, E, and F. And sort of being really clear in that whole gray area of good giving and game where you go from like enthusiastic agreement, fuck yes, I want to do this thing, to enthusiastic willingness. Yeah, I'd be willing to do that thing for you. Yeah. It's not like my first choice, but like, yeah, I could have fun doing that. And that would be that would be healthy and like good and happy for me to be going to do that thing. And it kind of slides into this gray willingness area where you're like, at a certain point we go from, yeah, I'm happy to do that for you, to if you're a service-oriented human, I would do that for you out of a sense of service, to I'm unsure where I stand on this issue. And that kind of slides into this whole non-consenty area very easily. Yeah. Right. So just please take care of yourselves when you're practicing this good giving and game framework of somewhere between yes and and, and no. But there- well, and and I think as as someone who is who is you know listening to someone articulate that mm-hmm. you can you can sort of gauge where they are on the enthusiasm scale as to 
how much careful check-in you might want to do when initiating it, during it, um, you know, sort of, um, and sort of, you know, uh, being careful to, to read them and see, mm-hmm. um, and see where you think you're at with that. So when, mm-hmm. um, when, uh, when something, when something is a, you know, is a, you know, sure, if you're into that, yeah, let's, maybe let's talk about that a little more if that's really what I'm into. Yeah, totally. Love it. So the only other thing to mention about the informed area is this um, this idea of confirming details, right? Like how many details should we talk about aftercare? And maybe that isn't from a kink scene. Maybe that's just, yeah, after we have sex, what does the morning look like? What are your expectations? Not necessarily where is this relationship going? Wait a minute, we haven't even had sex yet. Um, But like... You know, like, what what do you want out of this? Like, do you just want to have sex tonight and then go our separate ways? Because that's okay, but you should probably talk about that. Because if one person doesn't have that expert expectation and the other person does, you know, you're in for a world of hurt feelings. And that can just be really nasty. And nobody wants to, hopefully, leave someone else with that experience. So yeah. Talk about your expectations, whether that's aftercare or, you know, ongoing what what relationship agreements people have. You can talk about that in advance. That's probably an important one. Yeah. <laughs> Risks. Um, what would you do in the event of a mistake? If someone does screw something up with consent, what does that look like? Like, what what is the accountability that you have open? Are you open to being called in? Are you open to someone saying, "Hey, that that really sucked for me. That was a bad experience for me." Can you hear that? Can you hear that and not get defensive? Um, and and then finally, yeah, just to ask people why. Right? If someone says, "I really want to do this thing," and you have like any shred of doubt in your mind, just ask them why. Like, cool. What what feeds you about that? And it'll just give you so much more to go on when you're in that experience. If I understand why someone wants to do a particular sex act, I can really lean into that why. And I can do that sex act in a way that hits more of those buttons for them. I think we've all done our favorite sex act before and had it land really well or had it land like, wow, I don't know what was missing, but something about that just didn't kind of crush it for me. And Sometimes it's because there's a deeper kernel of a need that you're getting met by that sex act. And when people lean into that, it's it's really different. For me, that might be anal sex. And that might be, you know, like the idea of shame and the idea of like dirtiness and the idea of domination. Like there are a lot of these things that can be implied by certain sex acts, but don't have to be. Yeah. yeah. And I think of Stella Harris, who we've had on the podcast before, who wrote the great book Tongue Tied. Mm. She talks a lot about like the intent behind acts and, and sort of when planning out, you know, kink scenes or, or sex scenes for that matter, like, what are you looking for to get out of this? Like, what, what do you are, want to feel? What do you want to feel? Mm. Um, you know, rather than like, I want to do ABCD. Um, it's like, what do I want to feel as we get through this? Because it may turn out that, that, yeah, it's going to be a very different kind of anal sex that you have in, mm-hmm. in when you're looking for a specific thing. and Or you or a friend of ours who had a, a gangbang that was really, like, sort of loving and yeah. nurturing and really, you know, really cozy, that- which was not what she wanted. And it's it's like, okay, <laughs> you, you got the gangbang, but uh, if you were going through Stella's feelings checklist, you know, maybe you wanted to feel used. Maybe yeah. you wanted to feel, you know, dirty and objectified. Degraded. You know, Degraded, yeah. Maybe you know, um, maybe you wanted to feel you know really you know uh, sexy and adventurous, you know, and and instead you felt very comforted and loved. And <laughs> You're like none of the danger was there. And none I of the danger, yeah. And so. and you know, choosing people that you feel safe with, <laughs> yes, right, right. You know, and so you you know you deliberately choose people who you know want to take care of you 
which can sometimes backfire into the, <laughs> like them taking care of you in a way that, you know, if you haven't expressed, I actually want to feel dirty, that they're able to take care of you that way. So yeah, right. it can be a tricky and sort of thing. use their ideas of like service and caring to bring you the experience you want rather than yes. the yeah. experience of someone being service and caring. <laughs> yeah. But so often we're just like, no, I want to do this thing. Yes. And that's sort of as far as we think about it. Yeah. It's the traditional, be careful what you wish for. Yes. Curse. So yeah. yes, that isn't the monkey's paw. The monkey's paw. Yes. The turkey was dry. <laughs> the turkey's a little dry. <laughs> Curse you. <laughs> Oh, that's great. I haven't heard someone reference that episode of The Simpsons in, like, at least the last five years, so thank you very much for that. Yeah, well, all, all my Simpsons references are more than ten years old. So. They're the, the best Simpsons references. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so I guess we're on to, in, like, contextual or in context. Yes. Oh. Awesome. So this one we've already talked about. Um, it just sort of came up. We were talking most mostly about considering any context that might undermine or coerce a yes, or present a yes where a person's really a no. Mm-hmm. So things like power dynamics, whether they're negotiated power dynamics like MS or DS, please do talk about owner-property stuff or dominant-submissive stuff. Even if I know you've already pre-negotiated it, really think about like what are the ways in which this could coerce a yes, because that's a very important conversation. Well, and, and even for, for people that appear to be equals, power dynamics can come into play with with things like you know, opportunities mm. that can be presented, you Definitely. know, like, um, say, say this person, um, you know, run, runs an event and you're, you know, you're expecting to, you know, be called upon to, um, you know, to, uh, contribute something to that event or sell something at that event, um, run something at that event. And so, so, you know, that can be a power dynamic. That's something that can, can, um, that can cause, uh, cause you to nudge towards a yes in some situations where you might start leaning the other way. Mm, yep, definitely. Um, I feel like we've covered power dynamics pretty well. Do we want to yeah. move on to E, emotional? Um, I just wanted to sort of touch on the history of trauma as well. You bet. So people having triggers, there being landmines, people not always knowing what their triggers are and people not always knowing what their history of trauma is mm-hmm. and just sort of holding space for that to be one of the mistakes, right? Because the mistake yeah. isn't always, quote-unquote, on the part of the initiator. Sometimes people fail to disclose injuries that they don't know they have Mm. psychological or otherwise and that's okay just holding space for like it's okay to fuck these things up like this is really complicated and we're talking about six pillars or principles of best practices that's a lot to remember and the fact (laughs) that all of this seems intuitive and that people go oh yeah ongoing yeah definitely verified yeah that makes a lot of sense you know like informed like of course like a lot of people will be sort of like yeah this is this seems so obvious but to think about it in a nuanced way isn't and so I just wanted to hold space that it's okay to fuck this stuff up and the whole dominant marginalized identities as well would fall under contextual. So considering, is there a way in which I move through the world with a lot more privilege than the person I'm interacting with? Right. And might that undermine their ability to give me a no because they're worried about lost opportunities or they're worried about lost social status or they're worried they won't be believed in a community if they say no and I don't honor it, even though obviously I would honor a no. Um, but they, they, how would they know that? How would yeah. they know that? Yeah. That's exactly it. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah, let's talk about emotions. Yeah, the E in voices. I often talk about the emotional charge of the interaction, whether that's body language, tone of voice, like that typical enthusiasm that we tend to talk about. I often like asking people, what does a yes look like in your body or what does a no look like in your body? Um, I also think it's important to be mindful of underlying negative emotional states. Did you just lend this person money for rent? You mm-hmm. probably might not want to pick now as the time to ask to move your relationship into a sexual area. Mm-hmm. But that's 
that's a very nuanced thing that a lot of people may not think about. Or if they don't think about it, they might have a very hard time conceptualizing why it would be a bad thing to do. But there's this idea that that people can feel a sense of guilt or shame or um, a fear of disappointment. Yeah. That is a big one, especially for, for more submissive folks or for folks um, like ourselves that deal with some perfectionism, maybe. <laughs> I like to call myself a recovering perfectionist, but I think the truth is I'm just still a perfectionist. Yeah. Yeah. And the people pleasers and, you know, again, that, that sort of calls back to a lot of the trauma stuff, but you know, yes. um, that, that fear of disappointing people or the fear or the feeling that you sort of owe somebody mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also feel like sometimes um, there's a fear of, of disappointing an idea of yourself and mm. who you are as a sexual being. Yes. Yep. Yeah, like almost being coerced by by your own personal intense sense of my identity is wrapped around being this yeah. super sex positive person that does these things. Yeah. I don't care what my body's saying. This yes. is the person I want to be. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Thank you for bringing that up. My pleasure. Um, also, I wanted to mention grief and loss. Mm. Did someone just lose a partner? Are they feeling insecure? Are they panicking? Are they... Are they just, like, grief-stricken and just want to be comforted and getting fucked right now would be really comforting for them? And is that necessarily a bad thing? Because remember, we're just talking about best practices. We're not saying that these things are inherently not consent. We're just saying, hey, these are things that could hugely undermine a no. So just, like, have them on your radar so you can watch them. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and and I I think that the the nuance of the, the conversation gives room for people who... Maybe they don't really have enthusiasm in their repertoire for mm. giving consent. For them, you know, consent is is given, you know, willingly and confidently, but maybe not enthusiastically because of, you know, just their their particular neurological makeup. Yeah. So, on the topic of talking about emotions, I wanted to also bring up um the fawn response, which is mm. Which I could have brought up during in context as well, but I tried to spread them out so it wasn't just like context is this enormous section and then just like everything else being like 10 seconds to go through. Voices with a very big C. With a big C, yeah, totally. That's, that's what it was when I first developed it. Yeah. So the um, fawn response, when we talk about um, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, or if you'd like, we can just talk about how people respond to stress because we don't need to necessarily talk about it as this big condition or this thing or anything like that. Typically, when people respond to to intense stress or moments of panic, they'll have that sort of fight response of being really aggressive, which is uncommon during sex. It's possible. It definitely happens. But I think in my experience, it's been fairly uncommon. That might be because I primarily have sex with femme-presenting humans. I'm not sure. Um, But there's a fight response. There's a flight response. There's a freeze response. And most people are pretty familiar with those three. And then there's also this fawn response. It's sort of like... If you're in a situation and you think, oh my goodness, this looks exactly like that time that was really terrible, um, how can I negotiate myself out of this terrible situation? A lot of people will have this like squirminess about the way they down negotiate. And if you watch for it, you can sometimes see it. For me, if someone's down negotiating more than once ever, it's a huge red flag and I go right back to... Um, is it tabula rasa? I go right back to like, we have negotiated nothing. Let's talk about what you do want. Let's go back to inclusive negotiation. So if someone, if we're talking about something and someone's like, yeah, let's do this rope scene or let's have sex. Or let's do this thing. And they're like, Oh, but could we actually like do this instead? And it's a modification. I'm like, yeah, that's no problem. And it's like, Oh, and you know, actually that thing I just told you I wanted to do, can we actually do a little bit less than that? I'm like, cool, let's do nothing. What is it you want to do? Yeah. Um, okay. Not, not that I would use that tone. Cause that <laughs> tone would obviously not be good. Um, <laughs> 
But it's important that we tap into that because it's a thing people do and they're like, oh my goodness, this is going to be a huge non-consensual experience. What if I can make it instead of a big non-consensual experience, just a smaller non-consensual experience? And they'll just like try and down negotiate as much as possible to reduce the damage. It's like they've already given up on saying no, but they still have hope it can be less damaging for them. So that's that's t- sometimes called the fawn response. And it's like that fourth F from from that panic response or that CPTSD response. That's really interesting. And when you, when you read uh, or hear accounts of consent violations where one person mm. um, thought that the other person wa- was clearly consenting, mm. it is often exactly like that. You know, just, you know, modifying things, trying to kind of mitigate the, uh, the trauma of the experience. Yeah. And, and that's because the other person was looking for the checkbox. Yeah, and it's like you know, if you're if you're a no, then then where's the no? Right. Um, but the other person, you know, not feeling safe enough, not knowing whether their no is going to be safe and respected. Mm. Yeah, just trying to again reduce the damage, and sometimes yeah. that looks like minor reductions, and sometimes it's like, oh, you really wanted to have you know genital sex? Well, can we just do oral instead? Oh, well, can we just do manual instead of oral? And it's like, hmm. I'm noticing a pattern here. Would you rather do like none Not instead sex? of instead yes. of manual? Yeah. Often I will take um, if a person down negotiates, I'll ask if they want to down negotiate further. Yep, good idea. Because even if a person's just down negotiating once, it's still a bit of a red flag for me because I'm like, hmm, I feel like we missed something if they're down negotiating now. Unless we talked about it in the pre-negotiation that sometimes they down negotiate and we have options in scene or something. Yep. Mm-hmm. Because again. It may be a best practice never to negotiate in scene for kinky folks um, or during during really heated sex for non-kinky folks. Some people might be like, I don't like to negotiate during, you know, if you put that much thought into it. Yeah. So uh, certainly I, I would I would really suggest that up negotiating mid scene. Sure. For kink is a is a really you know bad practice. Yes. So. But obviously down negotiating is fine. Yeah. However, when there is down negotiation, it's good to understand why that down, down negotiation is happening. And if you've had a really thorough pre-negotiation, you sometimes have a pretty good idea of why someone might down negotiate or what issues they might be grappling with. Hopefully those would be included in a negotiation. But again, we're talking ideal world and a lot of us, you know, will follow less than best practices and still not give people the experience of, of non-consent. Yeah. Off, hopefully at all, but certainly not often. Well, and this, it makes me think this is, slightly me veering off topic or mm. or not entirely off topic but slightly tangential um the talk about the about the fawn response and the trying to find sort of the least worst mm. outcome yeah. when i i know when some of the allegations with the the me too movement came up there was some discussion um i think with the uh aziz Ansari situation where uh a person I was talking to was mentioning, you know, but she, you know, but she didn't say no and she stayed and she did this and she did that. And, and I sort of said, have you never been in in an experience with someone where you just kind of went, you know, maybe if I just blow them, I can just get out of here. Right. Yeah. Like, and they were just kind of like, Oh yeah. Like that. And it it just like everything changed about their, their countenance because you know, they had just, they were thinking, oh, well, you know, she did all this stuff and, and just didn't ever think about like being why? in that space and, and why you might be in that, like, what is the safest thing I can do? Or that, you know, power coercion of, I want to please this person because they're cool and famous and whatever, but Opportunities, even meeting famous people, et cetera. Et cetera. Yeah. yeah. And just, but just being in that moment where you're just like, 
if I do this, it, I can, I can, I can do this. Like that's not the worst thing, but, right. and if I do this, it will get me out of doing these other things. Right. I can and do the self care. I can handle the damage from yeah. this, but I, yeah. I couldn't handle the damage from that other thing. Yeah. No. And as someone, you know, assigned female at birth, socialized, you know, girl, woman to defer all that kind of stuff, you know, it's you, this is the, you know, and especially those of us who were in, in older generations, you know, Gen X or, or the boomers, um, you know, none of this stuff was talked about um, as far as like having rights to like, it was all like just gatekeeping saying, no, no, no. But um, there was a lot of this, oh, well, you just kind of go with it and maybe it won't be so bad. So yeah, that just made me slip into that. As no, that, discussion that, we were that, that was not a tangent. That was completely on topic and totally relevant to what we're talking about. Also, it's your podcast. You can tangent. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about me for a minute. Let's put that on a t-shirt. You are you are allowed to talk about you on your own podcast. <laughs> Not that you need the the mask person to give you permission, or, or two mask people. So I can totally do it now. <laughs> the important thing is we're aware of these dynamics, <laughs> as cringy as they may be at times. Okay, so we're talking about soundness. Yes, mm-hmm. S the so S in voices. The S in voices. I I really like this one because. There is so much talk about sobriety, and there's not a lot of talk about sound-mindedness, and sobriety can just look so different. Like, has a person taken all the substances that encourage their best decision-making, in their opinion? Right. I take um, 40-oxetine. It is a substance I take. It is necessary for my... Well, it is currently necessary. I could go off of the medication and be totally comfortable and healthy and, and mostly happy. Um, but it, it significantly improves my quality of life. It's a serotonin modulator and an antidepressant. And it is one of the substances I need for good decision-making right now. If I were not to be on it, I would have some serious adverse side effects, and that would make it very difficult for me to function super well. So being able to talk about sound-mindedness in the sense that, one, I've taken all the substances that I need for my best decision-making, in my opinion, and I have not taken substances that impede my best decision-making, in my opinion. This is a very subjective thing. It comes back to letting a person be their own expert. However, you also get to choose whether or not you trust that person in their current state. So maybe that person has imbibed a lot of alcohol and is very inebriated, and they're like, it's fine. Mm. You get to choose to say, you know what? This is over my risk profile. This is more risk than I'm willing to take. Doesn't mean you're wrong about you. I'm just not interested in having that experience, and I don't feel safe in the experience, and that's okay. It doesn't mean that you're overriding their decision-making, like... I'm not saying you should say no for other people, but you can say no for you in yep. saying like the risk of you choosing to accept this person um, at their face value, at, at their word, may be too high for you. That's not you saying no for someone else. That's you saying no for you because you're not comfortable with the risk factors involved. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and then I want the person to be there with me. <laughs> yes. You know? um, yes. And if it seems like they're not really there, then yeah, that's that's just not going to be a pleasurable experience. It's a pleasurable experience for me, let alone all of the other potential like um, consequences and, and non-consenty kind of things that, mm. that might come up later. It's just like, let's, you know, like we're all here to, to have the, the good time together. And if that's mm-hmm. not an option, then yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, so now that we've mastered our voices, um, mm-hmm. why don't we talk about preparing for the worst? So you sure. kind of you kind of brought up the idea of pre-planning for what we do in case of accidental consent violations. Mm, yeah, there are a lot of different ways to prepare for the worst. It really depends. Um, what direction do you want me to take that question? Because I can talk more about like accountability pods and like and more of like the formal sort of preparation, or I can just talk about some general. Best I think practices. more personal. I think okay. yeah, the sort of community justice thing I think could be a big rabbit hole to hop down so yeah I would even hesitate to call it justice but but yes okay um yeah so in terms of preparing for the worst so there are things you can do like before making decisions you can ask like before going into a situation with someone else you can use the um the HALT acronym is one of the ones I like to just share with people it's from um um, managing addictions to ask yourself am I hungry angry lonely or tired Mm. Mm. That's just like a really helpful self-check-in before you even start doing the negotiation. Like, how am I doing in my body? Right? Like, what am I feeling in my body right now? Just practicing some mindfulness. I feel like I should just put that on my dating profile. <laughs> like, maybe, like, like get a like, tattoo. Like, please check in with yourself? Or do you mean... Uh, no, with- th- those are my permanent states. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Wonderful. I feel like those are four. The four, the four pillars of your persona. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's your podcast. Right, yeah, it's, it's it's great. You can just have them tattooed like tramp stamp style. <laughs> so that any anyone that is about to partake is like hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Good to know. <laughs> I will be careful. Uh, right. Preparing for the worst. So being able to even just have the conversation with folks of like, hey, like if anything does go sideways for you or you have a really bad experience with me, I just want you to know, like, I'm going to do my best not to be defensive about it. And I'll be open to a call in. And if you don't feel comfortable coming to talk to me, you can always just like send someone else to talk to me. Or if you want to talk to one of my friends, that's fine, too. Like, I'm not going to be angry at you for slandering me in the community. Like, you're allowed to go and just check in with one of my friends and be like, hey, this thing went really sideways for me. Could you just touch base with Victor and just like, you know, let them know there are things that they could be doing better. And I think they have a blind spot for blah. Cause ultimately that feedback getting back to me is only going to help me as a person grow and be able to play better with others. So it just makes sense that I would want to get that feedback rather than continuously sort of gently creeping over, hopefully gently that line of what's consensual and what's like dubious consent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because if you look at folks that have histories where they've been called out for non-consent, it's not the first time. Almost yeah. never is it the first time. There's almost always a history stretching back of all of these dubious consensual actions or a lot of people that were having non-consensual experiences that were like, this isn't bad enough or right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and doing the thing that their friends will do, which is, you know, um, you know, they're not like that. This is just a thing that happened. And it's back to that assigning identity and that idea of shame and that idea of binaries and our actions defining us. And if someone does anything, even a little bit non-consensual, they must be a monster. And it's just like trying to hold space for people's humanities in that sometimes humans do things that they don't think about very much. And sometimes those have small consequences and sometimes they have earth shatteringly big consequences. Yeah. And it can be really thoughtless and really small for them. They may not even really notice or even care that much. And it's not until they're made aware this is actually having a really big consequence on other people and that they're able to see that and that lands for them and they can accept, yes, this is very harmful for others. Then they're kind of in that position of, do I really care enough about others to put in the work to change this? Mm -hmm. And some people don't. That, that's a problem. I get it. Yeah. And yeah. also, if they can even be motivated by just saying, like, hey, do you want to be called out and have to move to a new community every three years? 
right? What really matters yeah. is their behavior. It yeah. doesn't matter who they are as a person, period, in my opinion. What really matters is their behavior. Are they going to continue to be harmful in my community or not? Yeah. And if they're not going to be harmful in my community, I really don't care what their thought process is behind it. What matters is, are they still a harmful person in my community? If they are, cool, this seems like a thing our community needs to address. And if they're not, then there's nothing I need to address, right? Yes, it's important to hold space for survivors. Yes, it's important to do healing circles. Yes, it's important to center survivors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And also my biggest my biggest way of looking at a lot of these call-outs that sort of happen is like, okay, what are the dangerous behaviors we need to look for? And is this person dangerous in the community? And the, my personal opinion is the best way to sort of evaluate how dangerous someone is, is are they still doing damage in the community? Which could look like, are they shaming victims? Are they, are they trying to get victims thrown out of communities? Are they accusing victims of defamation? Like those sorts of yeah. situations. Like, is this person doing harm, in my opinion, in my community? I think that's a very good question to ask yourself when you're looking at these, rather than trying to say, oh, I don't know, I wasn't there, I don't really have an opinion. No. Um, because you shouldn't have an opinion about that, really. Or at the very least, I shouldn't use the word should. I shouldn't use the word shouldn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to have an opinion about that, I guess, is what I'm saying. Like, yes. It's not important yeah. that you try and adjudicate whether or not non-consent happened in the past. What's important is whether you evaluate, is this person at risk of non-consent happening to them in future, or, or of causing non-consent to others in future, um, like, are they at like a greater risk than others based on the practices you see? And, and are they able to practice accountability? Because sometimes someone who's just non-accountable for the things they've done wrong, even if what they're doing wrong is really small, that can be really dangerous. Just the non-accountability, because it can fracture communities. It can cause hugely polarizing, you know, conflict. And, and in a way that's not really resolvable because they're not willing to practice any accountability. Well, and, and that part of what fractures the community is, you know, the, the accusers and the defenders and, you know, right. and, and when there's, when there's no accountability, something even like you say, even very small in scope can, can have massive repercussions. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of that, you know, as, as you mentioned comes from, and it's, it, we do this with racism as well, that we treat this like monsters do this and yes. good people do this. Yes. And really not leaving room for, like, all of us do the things that monsters are accused of. Yes. Um, and how can we do our best to not do those things? Yeah. Um, and, you know, in intention and all these other things are, are pieces of it. But, like, trying to let go of that so that we can, like, have these discussions more. Yeah, let's not make you a monster. Let's just, you know... F- Talk about what you did. Yeah, like, how is misogyny or how is white supremacy alive in our society? And how does it move through you and your actions and behaviors and statements? Absolutely. And instead of just being really ashamed, oh my god, I'm not a white supremacist, I couldn't possibly have done something racist. Just being like, cool, yeah, I can see how my actions were problematic and I'm going to work on that and it's work I need to do. And just like, you know, pulling your sleeves up and just doing the work. It's it's not like, I'm like, as a person of color, I don't... I don't think it's necessary to shame folks for, for having white supremacy be alive in them. And a lot of folks of color um, can have a lot of internalized racism against other folks of color. Like these are, yeah. these are issues that, that folks just have to do the work and, and hopefully they do. I think what I notice a lot in the, in the swinger and non-monogamy communities, the way that I feel as a person of color, a lot of white supremacy moves through that space is this idealized sense of white beauty being the most beautiful. Mm-hmm. And you'll for get, sure. you'll get these like, quote unquote, super woke, um, even like as a relationship anarchist, even relationship anarchists talking about how like, you know, incredibly evolved they are as they date thin white women only, (laughs) cis thin white women. And you're just sort of like, 
<sighs> I have feelings. I have thoughts. Yeah, it's and, not and, my place and the, to you know, and the defense is always, you know, well, that's what I'm attracted to. Right. It's just my preference. It's just my preference, right. and Without it's like looking at how society has honed, yes, how that's been shaped, how yes. you know, how, yeah, and how malleable they are. Yes, they're so like there's so much more. Like we have this idea in like all in like alternative sex communities within like this liberal idea set of like orientation is set in stone. It is this thing. It is totally not malleable. And I'm not sure thinness counts as an orientation. <laughs> yes. And I think people need to be called in more about their fat phobia and that thinness does not count as an orientation. Agreed. I also am not completely certain race counts as an orientation. By not completely certain, I mean I'm completely certain it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but until we actually confront those biases that have been, you know, sure. just pounded into us, you know, since we were young and just everything we see and everything we learned, you know, consciously, unconsciously, um, that sort of information, we can't look at undoing any of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and the, the kind of panicky, um, you know, reaction is, is often, you know, well, you know, people shouldn't have to fuck somebody that they don't want to fuck. And it's totally. like, well, nobody wants to make you fuck somebody that you don't want to fuck. Yeah. Those people don't want you to fuck them if you don't want to fuck them. Yep. But that, you know, that's, that's the reaction. It's like, oh, you're, you're pressuring me. Yeah. Right. And it's like, no, like you don't have to date anybody. But yes. like the very, just want you to look at it. Yeah. Just like confront, confront perceptions of beauty and where they come from, especially if they're things that are say racial or, you know, even, I mean, even potentially class-based, but I feel like yeah. that's a harder sell which is a little crazy to me, but uh, but I, I shouldn't say that. That's stigmatizing. But, you know, it's a little maddening, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Still stigmatizing? I don't know. <laughs> frustrating. It's yeah. very frustrating. Yes. Yeah. That's that's a lot. We covered a lot. We did. All right. Well, well thank you so much for coming and having this conversation with us. Uh, can you tell us more about where our listeners can find you and, uh, yeah, more about you and your potential workshops and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. You can find all my stuff at IntimateVictor.com. All my social media on Twitter, Instagram is at IntimateVictor. Um, if you go to Facebook.com slash IntimateVictor, um, you will find the Intimate Interactions community. You can also go to IntimatePodcast.com. That's going to have... Um, the intimate interaction stuff. You can go and find me on Patreon, which is where I release all of my premium content, including workshop notes. So will be at patri- patreon.com forward slash Victor Salmon. That's my name. Um, you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Victor Salmon. I'm trying to think of where else I am online. That's pretty much it. Intimatevictor.com just has a lot of my stuff. And yeah, if you're looking for actually talking to me, you can email me at victor at victorsalmon.com. That's pretty much all I got, I think. Great. Sweet. Thank you for joining us. My new novel, Waking Up Polyamorous, is now available on paperback and ebook. Get it today from your favorite online book retailer. My sexy memoir, Yelling in Pasties The Wet Coast Confessions of an Anxious Slut, is available in audiobook, ebook, and paperback. Go to Amazon.com or visit OnTheWetCoast.com for links to other marketplaces. Be like other awesome listeners by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platforms. Just a few sentences make a huge difference in our visibility. You can help us have more adventures to tell you about by contributing to our Patreon, patreon.com slash onthewetcoast. Huge thanks to our Patreon supporters who help make this show possible. Follow us on Twitter at wetcoastcat, cat with a K, at seriousflick at onthewetcoast, and email comments or questions to contact at onthewetcoast.com. Go to onthewetcoast.com for Cat's blog, toy reviews, and more, and check out other great sex-positive podcasts on the Swingset Network at swingset.fm. And support me 
on Patreon! <laughs> Hi, this is Bradford, co-host of By the By, a podcast for anyone interested in learning a bit more about bisexuality, the swinger community, open relationships, BDSM, and everything else your vanilla friends refuse to talk with you about. You're listening to a Swingset Network podcast at swingset.fm. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Love it. Plug in the computer. I can see that it's Oops. on the red. We're a, we're a race car in the red, Jules. <laughs> What's that a reference to? Uh, Pulp Fiction. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. So pretty, please. With a, with a cherry on top. Clean the fucking car. <laughs>